1: Hello, I'm Laura Landon. Welcome to the New Books Network. Today we present an interview with Jeffrey McCormack and Tom Workman, authors of The Servant State, Overseeing Capital Accumulation in Canada. Their book argues that governments in capitalist countries primarily serve the interests of capitalism and the business class, not the majority of citizens who elect them to office. McCormack and Workman focus on Canada and the global economic crisis of 2008 when a Conservative Prime Minister's rhetoric reflected what they see as the hidden agenda of government austerity.
0: We've been very clear uh, that we're going to keep our budget in uh, surplus, uh, we're going to spend affordable things, but we're certainly Uh, not going to embark on deficits, we're not going to embark on uncontrolled spending. Look, there's nothing on the horizon, notwithstanding the storm clouds, and they are significant, indicates to me that we should immediately go into deficit. And, and, you know, the worry you have, I know economists will say, well, we could, you know, run a small deficit, but the problem is that once you cross that line, uh, as we see in the United States, nothing stops deficits from getting larger and larger and spiraling out of control.
1: Former Canadian Prime Minister Stephen Harper's promise to avoid financial deficits echoed the words of his predecessors in the decades since the 1980s. That's when governments began slashing social spending, cutting business taxes, and signing free trade agreements. In The Servant State, Jeffrey McCormack and Tom Workman write that such neoliberal policies are only the latest signs that capitalist governments serve capitalist interests. They argue Canadian governments have been doing so since the 19th century, when the country was founded. Their book is organized around two main ideas. The first reflects Karl Marx's theories about the crucial role of profits in stimulating capitalist investment, the accumulation of the machinery, equipment, and buildings needed for capitalist production. The authors argue that in Canada, profits were growing steadily before the 2008 crisis, and that's why the country wasn't hit as hard by the recession as the United States and countries in Europe. In The Servant State, McCormack and Workman contend the role of the capitalist state is to create the conditions for the growth of business profit, and then to help steer the system through crisis when profits inevitably fall, as Karl Marx predicted they would. Their second main thesis in the Servant State is that the capitalist system is inherently coercive in that governments have played active roles in creating favourable labour market conditions for capitalist employers. Unemployment insurance payments in Canada, for example, have always been short-term, forcing workers to seek jobs when their benefits run out. In the last couple of decades, Canadian governments have cut unemployment insurance benefits even more to ensure that workers are always available for work, even if it's only temporary, part-time, and poorly paid. Jeffrey McCormack is Assistant Professor of Political Science at Wheelock College in Boston, Massachusetts. Tom Workman teaches in the Political Science Department at the University of New Brunswick. The New Books Network caught up with the authors of The Servant State, Overseeing Capital Accumulation in Canada, at the Library of Mount Allison University in Sackville, New Brunswick. The interviewer is Canadian journalist Bruce Wark.
0: If you don't mind, I'd like to begin by asking about the last sentence in your book where you write that alternatives to capitalism desperately need to be found. Um, Why do you say that, Jeff? In the
2: best of times, capitalism tends to produce unemployment. It tends to produce poverty. It tends to produce war, environmental degradation, and alienating conditions for 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 workers and and um, and and people all around the world. And when things start to go bad, then all of those stresses that people face are accentuated. And so. I think what we're doing in the book is suggesting that a solution needs to be found.
0: Why does capitalism produce these negative effects, even at the best of times, as you say?
2: Well, there are, there are technical reasons for that, um, but one could say that, that these tendencies um, are woven into the very nature or the very fabric of, of capital, capitalism itself and um, uh, tend to produce these these results. And um, it's important to emphasize this continuity of capitalism across its entire history, that these aren't accidental features, that we have permanent unemployment in capitalism. It, it, It produces permanent unemployment owing to processes of mechanization. And the way that capital accumulation works, it tends to reproduce a large pool of unemployed workers. And that also tends to produce poverty. And capitalism also has this expansionary tendency. And so it tends to expand abroad all over the world. And that also tends to lead to conflict and wars. And, um, and one might also say that there is um, uh, a tendency towards environmental degradation as well within, within capitalism. And so all of these things are permanent features of capitalism, and this is one of the things that we point to in the book, that this is something that, that we need to emphasize. There tends to be in academia uh, an emphasis on discontinuity or change or differences within periods, but we lose sight of the fact that it is really the continuity that matters, and this is what we, we need to emphasize when we're thinking about how to create a better world.
0: Tom, you want to say something about that, about, uh, about the need to transcend capitalism or get beyond it or get rid of it
3: i I hope i'm not just being redundant but i think that we're picking up on a sentiment that is widely shared across the globe Uh, and if i were to put it in the language of today uh, there are so many people who are convinced that capitalism is is an unsustainable system even when it works it fails humanity it fails us on an individual level it fails us on a social level, and it also fails us in our relationship to the planet, to the natural world. So there is a sense, a widespread sense, that we have to get beyond this system again because it's not sustainable. And so, what we really think that what we really think we're doing is, is kind of emphasizing the idea that we have to somehow get beyond this system. An idea that is shared with, shared by, uh, so many people, especially people in what we might call the majority world, uh, people who are much more directly victims of global capital accumulation. Uh, We tend to be a little more insulated from that in the Canadian context, from the more extreme abuses, the misery, the poverty, and so on. But when we open our horizons up to the the globe, uh, to humanity writ large, we see grotesque exploitation and misery imposed on far too many people, but it is intuited by so many that it's an unsustainable system. So we're really just echoing a sentiment and not really saying anything new.
0: I want to talk to you about your book's title, uh, The Servant State Overseeing Capital Accumulation in Canada. Um, How does that title reflect the main ideas in your book? Uh, Tom Workman? Yes.
3: uh, Well, no title is perfect. And as authors, we all, you're always re- kind of wrestling sometimes with, with the title, particularly with the publisher. The publisher wants to, to sell books and make the book attractive to potential readers. And, of course, we're trying to maintain some kind of intellectual integrity. But uh, it was a difficult process. And to be honest, we didn't really have a title or we had such a generic title that it wasn't really going to be something that someone would pick up and really want to read. However, there was this idea that emerged as we were writing, and certainly while the book was being reviewed initially, that what we were saying in part was that the Canadian state, contrary to kind of a popular perception, the Canadian state really was a state that primarily focused on the accumulation of capital for the capitalist class in Canada and that it wasn't even though even though there's a language of a democratic state even though there is a language of a open pluralistic uh, uh, state even though there's the language of elections and so on in in, in a positive sense as opposed to a kind of pejorative sense the state itself was singularly devoted to serving the interests of the capitalist class and that that put severe or imposed severe limits on the kind of range of policies that the state may, may be able to actually enact so we organized the book around two theses that kind of teased out or emphasized the limitations upon the state. Uh, what we'd say, I guess, to put it slightly differently, is that given the constellation of vested interests in Canada that are attached to capital accumulation, the state behaves in a certain way, and it really doesn't get beyond that kind of behavior. And that behavior is not in the interest of Canadian people generally. It's not, certainly not in the, in the interest of the Canadian working class. So, uh, the idea of the servant state and the subtitle overseeing capital accumulation Canada draws out emphatically this underlying theme that the, the, the state really is not a democratic state in, in, in a meaningful sense of the word democracy.
0: Right. I think you point out in your book that uh, democracy is um, inconvenient for the business class.
3: Well, it is. I mean, I guess that we'd, I think we'd argue that it's a bit more contradictory. It it, it is a good thing because by appearing to be democratic, it legitimizes certain political processes. It legitimizes certain policies. And uh, it certainly in the 20th century, as we know from some of the experiences of authoritarianism, at least creates a veneer of kind of mass participation in a political system in a meaningful way. Uh, But, of course, uh, that is very limited. And and what we would want to underscore is the idea that that participation is very limited and that what you really have is a a system that's serving a very limited set of interests and doing so uh, kind of without fail. uh, That that tends to cast a very different view or perspective on the state.
0: Now, we'll get to that, how those interests are served by the state a little later. But I did want to ask you, about uh, the global financial crisis of 2008 because your book is really about how Canada came through that and you advance two theses uh, on, the, uh, on how that happened, how Canada weathered the financial crisis of 2008. Um, uh, Jeff, what would you say about those two theses that you have in your book? Well, I think
2: I'd like to f- speak to th- the first thesis and maybe Tom would say something about the second thesis. Um, the first thing that I would say is that the 2008-2009 Great Recession is well known that it's, it was one of the, the, the deepest and longest recessions since, since the Great Depression of the 1930s, and um, particularly in the United States. We know, however, that, that the experience in Canada was, was quite different. So just to give you a sense of what it was like in the United States, um, if you look at uh, bankruptcies, there is always a certain amount of bankruptcy going on in capitalism. It's a continual process. But through the crisis period, um, bankruptcies rose by 400%. So, a massive increase in the number of businesses just going bankrupt. And then between 2007 and 2010, there were about 300 financial institutions that failed in the United States. Unemployment, you know, the rate shot up. and. Uh, the number of jobs lost in the United States wouldn't actually recoup until about mid-2014, so several years later. Um, At the same time, GDP growth wouldn't recoup until, or GDP itself would not recoup until about 2011. So you could say that the recession in the United States was deep and long. And and the, our expectation, of course, for Canada was that, you know, if the United States does poorly, our expectation is that Canada is going to do poorly, too, because the economies are so deeply integrated, um, or at least appear to be so. So, for instance, um, Canada is an open economy, and um, it exports about 30% of its GDP, and about 70% of, that GDP, of, that goes, of those exports go to the United States. So um, we we're expecting it to be bad. And, of course, it did hit us, but the experience was very different. Um, So if you look at bankruptcies in Canada, for instance, um, they remained below their pre-crisis levels throughout the recession. So they were still occurring, but they they hadn't increased by 400% like they had in the United States. They just remained more or less level. Um, No financial institutions failed in Canada. Um, The... uh, Uh, unemployment, um, the number of jobs lost was recouped by, I think it was the middle of 2010. Uh, GDP had recouped by 2010. So comparing that with the United States, the story is very different. In Canada, it was short and shallow. And so there had to be some explaining that had to be done. And that's part of what what this book tries to do, is try to explain why it was that, contrary to our expectations, Canada did very well
0: what what are you arguing in the book um, about how canada came through the recession relatively in better shape than the u.s did
2: well we employ a classical marxian theory which um, emphasizes the fact that capitalism tends to go through periods of stability and instability these periods are relatively long 20 plus years in periods of stability, recessions tend to be short and shallow. Um, and booms tend to be longer. In periods of instability, however, recessions tend to be deep and long. And recoveries tend to be shorter. And we argue, essentially, that Canada had entered into a period of relative stability beginning in 1993, which persisted up until 2008. So when it was entering the crisis, or when the Great Recession struck Canada, it was already, had been in this long phase of relative stability. The United States, on the other hand, entered into a period of instability beginning in 1997. So the trajectories of the two countries are very different. and We argue that this is really what um, accounts for the different experiences in the countries. So the question is, what determines these long periods of stability and instability? And like I was saying earlier, we pick up on the classical Marxian idea that nothing in capitalism will get produced by a business unless it's produced at a profit. And so the key variable that we look at is movements in profitability. If businesses think they can make a buck, they'll invest. If they don't think they're going to make a buck, they won't invest. I don't think that that's a secret to anybody, but it's worth dwelling upon and thinking about. So that forces us to, or compels us, us, I should say, to look at that key variable first and foremost. If businesses are going to make a profit, it means that they'll invest in new machinery, equipment, structures. They'll also employ people, output will grow, and so on. If they're not going to make money, they won't make those new investments they won't employ additional people and output will stagnate. And we argue that when profits are growing, you get a long phase of stability. When profits are stagnating or shrinking, you get a long phase of instability. So there's a, there are different variables that, that that we look at, but the most important one is what's happening with, with profitability because that's ultimately, profit is king in capitalism and nothing happens unless it's, it occurs at a profit.
1: You're listening to a New Books Network interview with Jeffrey McCormack and Tom Workman, authors of The Servant State, overseeing capital accumulation in Canada. The interviewer is Canadian journalist Bruce Wark. I think
0: I mentioned earlier, Tom Workman, that your book has two main theses. Uh, You kind of group your arguments around. And we've just heard from Jeff about the first thesis, that profits drive the capitalist system. And that long periods of profit growth are inevitably followed by crisis periods when profits stagnate or decline, and that in fact, I, I guess, if I'm hearing you correctly, Jeff, uh, that Canada weathered the Great Recession of 2008 quite well, precisely because it had gone through a fairly long period when capitalist profits were healthy. So, Tom Workman, the second thesis in your book, The Servant State, concerns what you call the coercive character of capitalism and how the capitalist state uses coercion to serve the capitalist system. Um, First of all, what do you mean by coercion? And how is it playing itself out in Canada now following the crisis of 2008? Yes, there is a sense out there and i think
3: it's a fairly widespread sense that we're seeing a new set of policies imposed by by many states and these policies are usually summarized as austerity policies or we'll hear constant talk about an austerity agenda and it creates the sense certainly And we see this in in kind of political usage we see this in contemporary journalistic usage that we're entering into a new phase or on the verge of a new kind of moment in history that we've kind of left behind the neoliberal age whatever that may have meant and that we're kind of transitioning into something different and what we tried to emphasize in our second thesis is that austerity and we certainly do see the early beginnings, really, of, of policies in Canada that are consistent with austerity policies that, that have been implemented elsewhere. But we wanted to emphasize that austerity itself is really not so much an abrupt break, but part of a long-standing tradition of continuity with respect to social policy. And that to understand the continuity, though, we have to forefront the idea that the state itself has certain tasks that over time have been assigned to it. Tasks like managing the the coercive nature of a labor market, which may sound like like a mouthful, but really just means making sure that people feel sufficiently motivated to grab a job, even the worst possible lowest paying job that might be coming along in their community. So the idea is that austerity is part of a, a kind of continual set of policies that we really can trace back right into the 19th century and it, it the the notion of of continuity here is meant to in part underscore the idea that although there have been changes and some very meaningful changes like the rise of a kind of a fairer and more just labor regime in the early post-war period our, our, in in the western liberal democracies and especially in north america what we sometimes call the wagnerian labor regime even though these things have happened and even though they are very important there still is a long-standing tradition of policy continuity that reflects the fundamental obligation the state has to ensure that the capitalist system as a whole kind of maintains its course of integrity.
0: Right, and I think you used the word coercive there. Uh, in, to what extent is, is it coercive capitalism?
3: Yes, well, we think in a thoroughgoing way, but in ways that we, we don't really necessarily notice, but we feel. It is often the case where people kind of understand that in some senses, very limited, they have freedom in their society, a range of freedom. But in many, much more fundamental ways, their, 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 their alternatives or their, or their options are really severely limited. So, for example, at a certain point, you ha- it's recognized that you must work or you face a rather difficult period in your life. Uh, work or fall on hard times. People will colloquially say all the time you must work to pay the rent. The state ensures th- through its policies that you don't forget that. Uh, so when it enacts unemployment insurance legislation, for example, or when it grows the welfare state, that welfare state never interferes with the with the importance of ensuring that people are delivered into the into the arms of awaiting employers with, with as much efficiency as possible. Uh, what, what has really changed in the last decade or so is just the intensity of those policies. It, it is likely the case now where people are delivered into the arms of awaiting employers w- w- with, 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 with a feeling that it, it's of even greater necessity now than it might have been 20 years ago, when perhaps you could have excused yourself from the labor market ever so briefly and availed yourself of an unemployment insurance check. A pogey check as we might say colloquially every once in a while those options appear to be much more circumscribed today and they are part of a deliberate kind of set of policies that we see being enacted by the canadian state both at the federal level and of course at the provincial levels
0: in your book you have charts showing social assistance or welfare rates those uh, rates that uh, the very poorest uh, who aren't working can get you, it, it could be argued and is argued by politicians on the right that those rates have to be low, not in in order to make welfare unattractive for workers, but because we simply don't have the money uh, to taxpayers can't afford more generous benefits. What, what would you say to that counter argument? Yes.
3: Well, the idea, uh, there's, I, I guess, two parts to, to my response to that. The idea that the state is broke or the state has insufficient funds is an argument that can be adduced at any moment to almost justify any policy any cut uh, in fact it is the primary argument the idea that the, the state is in a kind of permanent fiscal crisis is an argument that is regularly adduced now by governments around the world to justify what we what we know colloquially as a kind of cutting and gutting agenda so the, 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 that that plea will always be there what is not noticed or what tends to not be forefronted, sometimes because politicians themselves don't understand it, but I don't want to let them off the hook too quickly, is that a lot of the reasons why we have fiscal crises right now in the states is that there have been extreme cuts to corporate tax rates. And corporations just simply aren't paying their share. And so that, therefore, they end up in situations where the state is at least limited in terms of its fiscal options. But having said all of that, there is something disingenuous about the argument. And that's because the function of the state is to ensure that there's a labor supply in the labor market. So even if the state had the funds, the state would not be able to really use those funds to provide meaningful relief for people in the sense that it gave them an option to, however so briefly, opt out of the labor market. In other words, the state has this role of driving citizens into the labor market and of making them move if that's necessary, of rolling them off welfare rolls if that's necessary. That is the state doing what it has to do in order to kind of maintain the the kind of optimal labor market in a society. So that's why it's a bit disingenuous to say we're broke, we can't afford that. Because even if we could afford it, the state would still not do it. It would undermine the course of integrity of the labor market.
0: And everything you've been saying here is an example of what you said earlier about how the state serves the interests of capital accumulation or capitalism and not uh, the broader public or the mass of voters.
3: Yeah, and we, we would say that, but perhaps emphasize it from a slightly different angle historically the state is for us just the institution that has kind of arisen to underwrite the agenda of the capitalist class it's not that it was uh, simply assigned these tasks at some point in history it just evolved this way Uh, and it was only in the 19th century when we started to see the kind of democratic expansion of the states a coming a kind of consolidation of the European states and that did indeed money the kind of picture or image we have of the state, but its essential role or task or obligation, it has to capital has remained fundamentally unchanged for 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 basically since the 18th century.
0: Well, Tom Workman, um, your book is extremely critical of. The traditional left-wing discourse, academic discourse in Canada, um, what, what is wrong with that uh, critique of capitalism and how does your book differ from it? Yes, well the,
3: the, the kind of discourse uh, or academic debate, if I can call it that, on, on the economy in Canada or what we sometimes call the Canadian political economy or the CPE tradition, that debate went through two definitive periods. It kind of gets started around certain authors that are focusing on commodities, so they tend they to be called staples and so on. And then it goes through a period of revision or reform. And this really started in the 1970s and 1980s, uh, sometimes alongside the, the early form of the debate that was focusing on staples. And it started to emphasize things such as class analysis and so forth. What neither tradition did. In the discourse on Canadian political economy in the academic debates and so on is look at the the tendencies or the laws of motion of capitalism itself in other words they didn't really look at at capitalist social formations they didn't really pivot from the formidable literature that is out there that has been out there for for over a century on the dynamics of capital accumulation uh, dynamics that are peculiar to the, the, the nature of capitalist societies the emphasis is usually on the, uh, in, in the Canadian context, the emphasis would, on, would, would be around notions of a class hijacking the economy, or the emphasis would be on the idea that our ties to American exports were somehow going to sink us, or the uh, emphasis would be on something about whether or not we were being uh, uh, somehow um, uh, uh, undermined in the world system or not sufficiently competitive and so on. These kinds of debates... Uh, the, the, the emphasis on, on what we might call, somewhat derisively, Canadiana. These kinds of debates all tended to not really examine capitalism itself, per se. So what we are doing in this book, in part, is coming out of a tradition that centers Canada as a capitalist society. Uh, we're really downplaying the Canada part. It's really a study of, of, of a, if, if, if I can be a little uh, cheeky about it, it's a study of a capitalist society that happens to be Canada
0: how does your book kind of cut through the traditional um, discourse to make more fundamental points? Uh,
3: yes, by, by centering the idea of capitalism, what we are necessarily doing in keeping with the literature that we are pivoting from is centering the idea that capitalism has a, a what we would call a kind of uh, natural tendency towards crisis or what we might say a little more formally as an, as an imminent tendency towards crisis. Capitalist goes through crisis periods, it goes through cycles, it goes through periods of ups and downs and that these are inescapable, they're unavoidable. So when we look at the Canadian economy, our book is more likely to tease out the idea that there have been four crisis periods in the last 120 years. Each crisis period brings, brings a kind of unique set of dynamics and problems to the surface uh, but it's the recurrent patterns, uh, the, the recurrent patterns in capitalism that we are teasing out, and again teasing out in the context of the Canadian situation. So what we what we are really doing is is emphasizing first and foremost that Canada is a very ordinary capitalist state. And we start from that standpoint, and we don't start from the standpoint that somehow our sovereignty is being impinged from the, by the United States or that our focus on resource exports got us into a lot of trouble and means that the natural course of development of the economy has somehow been impaired. We start with from, from none of those ideas that are, are, are kind of the common, pun intended, staple of Canadian political economy. We are starting from the idea that Canada is a capitalist social formation and therefore is subject to the same laws of motion as all capitalist social formations.
0: I I did want to ask you too about the traditional left in Canada as well because you mentioned that or you deal with it in your book. On the one hand, the New Democratic Party is the traditional, uh, I I don't like to use the term Socialist Party, uh, (laughs) um, the New Democratic Party on the one side and the Canadian Labour Congress on the other, the the marriage of those two things in the New Democratic Party. Um, How do you see the failure of politics in Canada uh, to... uh, to address what you see as the fundamentals of capital accumulation? Uh, Yes, uh,
3: that's a wonderful question, because I think if there is a primary political point to our book, it's what we would want to do is emphasize the following. We all tend to talk about the gains of the early post-war period, especially for the working class. And they were important gains. There was the enactment of labor laws, labor relations laws, labor standards laws. They were very meaningful. There was the emergence of the so-called welfare state, where we saw some protections being afforded to families, especially disadvantaged working-class families. We saw the rise of one of the signature achievements, really, of the post-war era, the early post-war era, which was the development of an unemployment insurance regime. These were significant gains and we would never want to to draw attention away from their significance. But what we sometimes do and is, in emphasizing those gains, we fail to observe that they came at a profound cost, a profound political cost. Basically, in order to secure those gains, we had to shell the idea of any kind of socialist or radical political agenda. It was taken off the table. And the mechanisms through which this was taken off the table would, would, would take us days to elaborate. But uh, even for, just to give you one small uh, uh, pick, one small kind of insight into this, labor itself, organized labor itself, started to pick off the radicals from within the labor movement, and that was what led to that had to happen before the CLC could actually be formed in 1956. We forget that the early post-war period, despite the fact that it brought sometimes tangible material gains to the working class, came with this profound political cost, and that is the shelving of a radical political agenda. Left-wing politics was reduced to policy considerations, which is fine until another crisis comes along. And then all we are doing is reacting to policy issues and policy matters. And the left is absolutely ill-equipped to deal with the more profound problems that capitalism naturally engenders.
0: So we begin in the 30s with the CCF um, saying we have to move beyond capitalism. And where do we end then with the evolution of the CCF and then later the NDP?
3: Yes, the CCF Uh, and and, and this is often forgotten about the CCF, is that it had an agenda that was devoted to somehow transitioning beyond capitalism. I think, as we mentioned in the book, this was hardly a radical idea. In the 1930s, the United Church of Canada said that we have to somehow get beyond capitalism. Uh, But what we tend to forget is over the next 25 years, that idea fades, and it fades in the context of incredible, um, an incredible amount of state repression, direct state repression, uh, especially on the on the left-wing organizations and parties that carry that message. Uh, incarcerations, deportations, and so on. So the state was very aggressive. In fact, we all know that the CBC was actually formed to kind of create and hammer out the message that communism and anything socialist was necessarily bad. So by 1961, when the New Democratic Party is actually formed, they are already abandoning the idea that you have to somehow get beyond capitalism, that there's a kind of post-capitalist world. And and so they're already basically committing themselves to a, to a capitalist future. And that is a dramatic change. In a, in a, in a mere 25 years, that is a dramatic change. But it is a change that today we forget actually happened and, again, has left us in a a kind of difficult position where we we really are ill-equipped politically to respond to the
2: neoliberal agenda and then the austerity agenda.
0: Jeff McCormack.
2: I just wanted to add a couple of points to this. The first point, um, I, I guess, I would just r- very briefly um, recap what, what Tom had said: is that there's a continuity in state policies across all periods of capitalism, and that the golden age was no exception. That there are certain boundaries beyond which the capitalist state will not tread. Um, so that's that's the first point, and of course that it came at an incredible political cost. Another important point that um, we should also recognize is that the post-war Period, the so-called golden age, was um, unique in terms of, um, the, in the sense that, the underlying conditions of capital accumulation, profitability, and so on, were such that it made that type of la- labor regime possible, and that those conditions eroded in the 1970s, and they haven't returned. So, in other words, it was premised upon a period of relatively strong growth and stability coupled with a working class movement that pressured the state to make it possible, but of course at certain costs. Today, we have um, we don't have a working class movement in Canada. And the conditions, the underlying conditions of capital accumulation that made that period possible have also eroded in Canada. And so I think that that's, that's also an important lesson to keep in mind. Um, it's not as though, the state can be captured by the left and then reor- reoriented towards the um, some sort of labor regime that resembles the post-war golden period. That's, that was a period in history to which we will not return. And uh, I think that's, that's important to keep in mind. So I, what our book does is to cut through these two ideas. It cuts through the idea that the state is somehow neutral and that it's something that simply can be captured and then put to good use. And it also cuts through the idea that Capitalism can sustain periods of prosperity for working class people. And it can't.
0: It can't. It cannot. Because of the nature of
2: capitalism. Uh, Of of course, yeah. Because of the nature of capitalism, the fact that it has a tendency towards crisis, that it tends towards stagnation over the long haul. And that periods of, when there there are periods of renewed growth, um, they tend to come at the expense of working people. It means longer working hours. It means uh, lower real wages. It means more intense and more intense work life. It means higher productivity. It means more coercion at the workplace. It means more a higher degree of supervision. It means more stress, more alienation. Right. It also comes at the expense of massive unemployment and restructuring and moving people around. And um, you know, the, a case in point is is um, Canada's experience in the early 1990s and the fact that um, you know, we did have this period of relative stability going into the crisis, but it only came at the expense of working people throughout that, throughout that period. And then austere measures on the part of the Canadian state in the in the early 1990s and onward, right, which further disciplined workers. So I think that's important to keep in mind.
0: Well, given this uh, hidden agenda of austerity, which uh, does penalize the mass of people in a capitalist society, um, how, Tom Workman, do you account for the fact that governments which pursue these policies get elected and re-elected and, and then uh, continue the policies on? Uh, how does that happen in a democracy?
3: Well, that that's not an easy question to answer and one of the reasons why it's not easy to answer is we know that if we sit down and talk with people, just working families, once they're kind of confident that we're not asking questions for a particular reason, if we're just having a casual chat with a carpenter or we're just having a casual chat with someone who might be sweeping a floor, they will say things that we would kind of be inclined to label as contradictory. Uh, A person will say, you know, on the one hand, uh, unions have too much power. And yet on the other hand, we know it's a rich man's world. And that sometimes will even actually be said in the same sentence uh, over a dinner table. You can imagine a sentence. What happens in our society is the sentiments that tend to discourage against kind of pushback against the system. Uh, the sentiments that might encourage or be consistent with a slightly more radical political outlook or agenda the sentiments that might be more critical of our society are the sentiments that tend to get quashed they get quashed in the media they kind of get erased in political discourse the sense the sentiments that kind of promote the system the ideas that promote the system are the ideas that are kind of pushed both in the media and they're pushed by politicians they're pushed by the the kind of um, bearers of the standard message of the business community and so on so let me give you an example it was one of the most fascinating things i have encountered as a researcher and that was about 20 years ago a canadian a, a senator a senator from new brunswick Ermini cohen innocently went to a conference on poverty in st john and she discovered while she was there that she had she had what she'd later called a life transforming experience and she discovered while she was there that it was her politicians uh, her fellow politicians that were really really spreading what she called pornography what was what was dubbed as pornography at this conference she said it's not just that the idea is out there it's that the politicians are actually doing the finger wagging it's the politicians themselves who are who are disparaging people who are actually uh, poor people who have fallen on hard times uh, they do that they kind of carry that message, they push this message and then design policies to reinforce the idea that people, uh, poor, poor people are somehow personally at fault for their poverty, personally culpable, blameworthy. So even though people will hold ideas that are kind of inconsistent or contradictory, and certainly often hold ideas that are a lot more spontaneously sympathetic with a the, with the person who might find themselves in un, a, a situation of unemployment or in a situation of poverty, the ideas that tend to be pushed both by politicians and in the media, the kind of mythologies and the cultural ideas that kind of circulate, circulate on television, circulate on the airwaves, circulate in, the, in political speeches and so on, even circulate in a in, in kind of less informal uh, 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 situations, such as a university course, these ideas are the ones fundamentally that n- n- kind of reinforce the system, that kind of help maintain the mythologies or illusions that we have about the system. For example, the idea that voting matters, that very simple idea. It is ironic that if you said to most people, most working class people, if you asked them whether or not elections mattered, uh, their answer would depend on the level of trust they they had of, of, of you as, as the poser of the question. But quite often, probably in the majority of circumstances, uh, people would very quickly say, no, elections don't really matter. It doesn't matter whether you elect one party or the other policies are more or, less, more or less consistent. There is what we might call a popular wisdom about the sham nature of electoral democracies. And people will be hard pressed to say, voting really makes a big difference. Now, now that, of course, is not uniform. But that idea gets buried. That idea gets buried in the public media. That idea gets buried by politicians. They all have a vested interest in making sure that we believe somehow that voting does matter, despite the popular perception that voting is actually inconsequential. So it's a very elaborate and sophisticated way in which these ideas tend to get teased out. But it goes from a kind of inconsistent or paradoxical or contradictory sense that people have of the world to one that smooths out the the kind of prevailing mythologies so that the system is easily kind of reproduced or replicated or regenerated or whatever and that the opposition or the critique that actually could amount to something or would amount to something under proper political circumstances ends up getting
0: kind of marginalized or shunted to the side jeff mccormack
2: um and i would just add the following point to what tom said which is i I think really really captured the um the essence of the matter um and that's the idea that um you know People don't vote. Many people simply don't vote, and that's sort of a, a rational response to um, to a, a situation of, of effective power powerlessness. Um, there's also a lack of uh, a pole of attraction for people um, in terms of political alternatives as well. And I think that also that also plays plays into this story. So I would add those those two those two elements as uh, as additional factors that contribute to. To um, the the fact that we see these parties being elected and re-elected.
0: Now, I know this isn't in your book, but what would a uh, post-capitalist society look like? What would an ideal be for you uh, as an alternative to capitalism? Uh, Jeff McCormack.
2: That's probably one of the most difficult questions that we have to answer today. Um, Envisioning a different world. And I might start by saying um, something about Bernie Sanders and and the popularity of of his ideas Um, and just how different these ideas are from the ideas that existed in the 1920s in Europe, for instance. Um, Bernie Sanders um, promotes, for instance, the breaking up of the big banks um, as a means to combat what is effectively a type of crony capitalism from, from his perspective. The idea that the billionaire class controls the state through lobbying and so on, which is not untrue, but that really detracts attention away from from what the targets ought to be. We have to have a clear understanding that the state has evolved to promote capital accumulation on the one hand, despite who occupies the particular positions within the state. We also have to understand that, um, that capitalism is the system that tends towards crises and, and misery and so on. And Bernie Sanders' solutions aren't particularly socialist. So the breaking up of the big banks, for instance, the, um, the, uh, the, the famous socialist Rudolf Hil- Hilferding would have, been, would have been shocked at that idea of breaking up the big banks. He says, capitalism does us the great favor of concentrating and centralizing finance. We should take it over. Right? And, and use it for social purposes, not break up the banks, not create a more competitive, competitive financial system. Um, and, um, and so I would draw more inspiration from, from, from the thinkers of the 1920s um, who suggested that um, we need an alternative way of organizing social life. We need to look beyond the capitalist state um, as a means of organizing life we need to look beyond the um, uh, profit motive as a means of organizing economic life so I would leave it at that but but the fact of the matter is, is that is that these details are um, are need to be worked out by by people themselves so I would also add that that, that um, a future society ought to be profoundly uh, democratic in that sense yeah
3: okay. I would uh, echo certainly the democratic part of any kind of system that is envisioned as being part of a post-capitalist world, as we might say. But I would also want to emphasize the idea that, uh, and we do mention this briefly in the book, that the system would be a needs-based system. Uh, Whatever economy, whatever kind of organization that we have in our productive world, in a post-capitalist world, it would be centered on needs as opposed to producing commodities for profit or goods for a profit. We have lots of examples of how this might might look. And I think in addition to it being democratic, we'd want to also say it's somewhat pluralistic. But we, we have the example of the, uh, the Mondragon Cooperative Network in the Basque region of Spain. We have the example of the co-op Italian network. We have many communes around the world, many communal societies actually existing in the United States. We've had back to the land movements, even in the Canadian context, even in the region of New Brunswick, we had a back to the land movement where people have constantly experimented with alternative societies. And in that context, we know that that might not be a perfect solution but always if there's a characteristic to it it becomes a need-based productive system or a need-based economy people make things based on need alienation goes down the feeling of community goes up the feeling of the feeling of of being kind of spontaneously supported by those around you goes up Uh, general levels of anxiety fall i'm not trying to hear paint a kind of romantic picture of it but we certainly do see the examples of change and in the south today in the in the majority world we see the uh, what, what we sometimes call the walking commune the experiments is the experiments in southern Mexico we see the Brazilian back-to-the-land movement uh, we see resistance in many different forms uh, we see spontaneous cooperative networks being formed in in Indian cities, for example, uh, by women who are being exploited by managers in the garment sector. We see many different examples. Again, coming back to the idea of pluralism, of economies that really are starting to drift towards or becoming wholly centered around the production of things for people's needs, as opposed to to kind of profits
2: for a select few.
0: Jeff McCormack,
2: and I would add that. Um, if it's going to be democratic and needs-based, that also implies a certain amount of planning or effectively talking about an, a society in which um, everyday people control their own destiny, control their own lives, both politically and economically. And that implies certain things as well about the types of technologies that we would see in a future society. For instance, um, there's a case of a um, the landless peasants movement in, in Brazil, where they take over a plot of land and start producing for the purposes of consumption and sales and so on. But um, workers working in the field um, originally were using types of pesticides that were very harmful to them. And if you put the power into people's hands, the actual people who are doing the work on the ground, they're not going to expose themselves to pesticides. So they're going to think of alternative technologies that they're going to want to use. So for instance, in this case, they decided to use old milk to spray the plants with because that kept the bugs off. So you see those types of different types of technologies start to emerge when people actually control the circumstances of their own lives and they control their own workplaces. So we would see a radical transformation the types of technologies that we would see as well be less alienating technologies. they would be technologies that encourage human growth that maybe at the expense of, of output, you know work would 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 fundamentally transform because people would have a say over the work process people would not submit themselves or their friends and colleagues to the type of alienating conditions that we see all around the world today in sweatshops and and um, and this is uh, I think a very important thing thing to realize so I think there's the three points would be that it would be a, a planned economy it would be democratic and we would we would see a, um, a Diminution of the types of abuses that we see uh, in, in the capitalist world today, and I would also add that we would not have um, the types of crises that we have today, which are uniquely capitalist crises. It's the first social system in the world where you have simply an abundance of goods and resources and uh, and uh, means of production and so on, which in certain periods simply go unused or wasted right and so those types of crises are unique to capitalism they've never existed in any social form before capitalism the 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 limits to to economic growth in previous social formations were 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 environmental often right they weren't social and and we'd see an end to the, also those types of crises and dislocations and so on i think but those are the in broad strokes the type of society that i think that we would see
0: jeff mccormack uh, tom workman Thank you very much for joining me today on the New Books Network.
2: Thank you very much for having us, Bruce. It's been our pleasure.
1: You've been listening to an interview with Jeffrey McCormack and Tom Workman, authors of The Servant State, Overseeing Capital Accumulation in Canada. The interviewer was Bruce Wark. I'm Laura Landon. See you next time on the New Books Network.